Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 319 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Neil Asher. He's the author of dozens of science fiction novels and short stories, most of which are set in a future history called the Polity Universe, which encompasses many classic science fiction tropes, including world-ruling artificial intelligences, androids, hive minds, and aliens. And we'll be speaking with him today about his most recent short story collection, The Gabble and Other Stories. And now, here's our interview with Neil Asher. All right, so we're here with Neil Asher. Welcome to the show. Um, thank you for having me here. Okay, so it says online that when you were growing up, your parents were big science fiction fans. So just what was yeah. that like growing up, surrounded by science fiction? Well, I mean, there wasn't huge amounts of uh, science fiction in the house. I mean, they were definitely science fiction fans. It was just nice to grow up in a house with um, plenty of books everywhere. Um, that, I mean, they had things like the old um, oh, Victor Galland's Yellow Spined Books. I don't know if you know about those. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, they had those scattered about. Copies of things like um, oh, uh, books by John Wyndham, like, uh, you know, Day of the Triffids, things like that. Uh, John Limington. And <clears throat> yeah, so it was good. They led, they led me astray. <laughs> <laughs> it says uh, that uh, Rogers Lasney's Chronicles of Amber was a big influence on you. I've, yes, it's, um, I mean, I've read an awful lot, but I must admit those, um, those those books were ones I kept going back to to the point where I I hid them away in the loft so that I wouldn't <laughs> read them again. Yeah, <laughs> so I'd almost got them verbatim. Yeah, the amount of times I read them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's my favorite series, and I've read some of them. I would say about fifty times. Um, actually, for mm. my birthday a year or two ago, my girlfriend got me a first edition of the Guns of Avalon. So one of my most prized possessions. Oh, that's pretty. That's nice. I mean, I, I went out. I mean, you're saying about my uh, my parents, um, you know, with all the, the, the fiction that they had around them. Uh, one of the, the book that led me into uh, finally getting hold of the Selasny books, those Selasny books, was uh, early one of these, Jack of Shadows. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, that is basically that is the precursor to um, to the characters to the characters in those books. Yeah. 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 Uh, to, uh, to you know, traveling through shadow and so on. Yeah, absolutely. Would you say that those books had, or Zelazny in general, had an influence on your writing? Like, could you point to anything in your writing that you think was influenced by him? Yeah, well, I did. Yes, I like the style. I very much like the style. I mean, whether it whether it has actually affected my style, I don't know. But um, yeah, it, it's a bit, um, I don't know, Raymond Chandler-ish, isn't it? It's, uh, that, that's what it seems like to me, those books. But yeah, I mean, I write, I write it in the foreword of me um, of uh, another book, the, the Skinner. Uh, thanks to all those writers from like Aldis to Zelazny, yeah, because mm. <laughs> uh, the books on my shelf. Uh, one one time, I mean, I, over a period of years, I I, um, I measured it, and I was reading something like ten books a month, and this averaged out over years, so. There's, there's a lot that's influenced me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just having read The Gabble and other stories, one one possible influence that jumped out at me was that Selassie wrote a lot about characters who were men of action and very unflappable. And you seem yeah. to write, like to write about those sorts of characters as well. 
Yes. Oh, yeah. Look, I like to see that in, in most books. Um, I, so, sometimes, I mean, I, sometimes in my reading, I tend to get annoyed when the um, when the character is uh, the main character, you know, your, your hero or whatever, is, is given uh, given too many faults. So, yes, I like the idea of an unflappable character. Hmm. As people have said, like a bit of a James Bond in my books, yeah? Yeah. So how did you start writing your own fiction? Oh, um, how did I start? <laughs> I, I, um, it's, it's in various like biogs and things of mine. I mean, I was um, when I was young, I was um, interested in everything. Yeah, I would um, I would dabble in electronics. I used to paint and draw, make sculptures, all sorts of things. Um, back then writing was just another one of those interests yeah so i i think it was our um i'd overdosed on ec tub books as a teenager and then i went into school and the english teacher said to the class um right i want you to write a write a story which was a fairly unusual uh fairly unusual request in those classes um and I wrote something totally like derivative of um, E.C. Tubb, like his Doomerest saga it was. And oh, got big compliments from the teacher. Oh, well done. That was really imaginative and so on. So that started me off. Yeah. So I, this was another one of my projects when I was young. So I started off writing the bits and pieces. It was only later on that I made a decision that um, I should pursue, um, I, I should, pursue just one thing i don't want to be a jack of all trades and master of none yeah so i decided on writing so when did you start sending your work out and pursuing publication oh um well i I mean i was writing from my um from my teens from school year like 15 16 years of age but not really not really seriously yeah um but i suppose Early twenties, about early twenties, I started. Um, I started sending stuff out. I mean, I, I, by then I had written a, um, a fantasy, which which still sits in my computer unpublished. Yeah, hmm. um, and I started sending things out. Um, but then, then I discovered the small presses in England, and um, I started to write short stories and. and target them at things and you know and try try to get something published that's uh yeah about early to early to mid 20s when i started to take it seriously and so what was that like what what were your first few publications these are short stories like what were they about oh um well i it's uh i, I went up every step of the ladder so i mean i, I started sending out a short um short Basically, short. It was short science fiction, short fantasy stories, uh, whatever. Um, oh, and eventually, I got published in a magazine called Back Brain Recluse. In it was nineteen eighty six. <laughs> and so, then, how did you make the transition from selling stories to the magazines to publishing books? Oh, um, well, every step of the ladder. Okay, um, I started sending uh, stories out. I occasionally get a story um, taken for which the payment would have been like a free copy of the magazine or something like that. So I wasn't earning any um, money from it. 
and I was publishing more and more and more, and then I was getting little occasional payments, and then I ended up with um, some like, if you like, a larger small press publisher where they published um, um, a novella of mine, a, a collection of short stories of mine, whatever. I'll be, but meanwhile, over all these years, I was still sending my um, synopses and sample chapters to um, to the big publishers for, for various books. Uh, that I mean that that state that carried on for years, uh, but then I was getting um, some good reviews in things, and I sent in Gridlinked, which is my first uh, book with Macmillan, to Macmillan. But I also sent it in with a stack of reviews um, for the stuff that I'd had published in the small presses. And I think that may have, you know, got my foot in the door. Um, and that happened in 1999, the end of 1999. Well, Macmillan phoned me up, guy at Macmillan phoned me up and said, oh, we'd rather like to look at the rest of this. So that was good. <laughs> <laughs> and so that book, Gridlinks, was the first book in the Polity series. Is that right? It is. Yeah. Yeah. The first, yeah, first book, but I mean the policy grew, grew throughout that process of writing all those um, short stories as well. So yeah, but that was the first um, major book. Yeah. So just sort of, what was your thought process for coming up with the polity? What were kind of the seeds for that idea? Well, I started. I was writing um, short stories, like totally way out there, what um, mostly science fiction. Yeah, and certain things would appear in the in the different stories yeah certain aspects of a world and and then i basically i thought well, we, well i like all this and i like i like all these bits that i've got in there like there was creature the creatures aliens called the prado appeared in one story for example which are in my books um but i kind i kind of made a, a decision on it that i wanted a a universe, a future, a future history, if you like, big enough to tell just about any science fiction story I'd want to tell. Yeah, and that—that is—that's how the polity came about. Yeah, it was a fusion of all those short stories, and I wanted to make them all, uh, make a world that they could all fit into. Yeah, and and that was the polity. And so for people who haven't read these books, I want to just sort of describe this setting. So this is, it's what, it's a couple hundred years in the future? Yep, yep. It, and, well, it ranges, it ranges because it ranges, yeah, it's centuries in the future and then extending over a, a number of centuries as well, yeah. Uh -huh. And so, and humanity has expanded to about a fifth of the galaxy. Yep, yep. Yeah, it's, well, it's expanded to about a fifth of the galaxy. It's covered, it's say. It's a big um, space opera type empire, whatever. It's not well. It's not an empire. Um, the expansion came. It, it starts off with the human races expanding into the solar system, and humans control humans. You know, it's human politics in charge, and so on. And then something called the the Quiet War happens, and this is when artificial intelligences um, effectively take over. It's called the Quiet War because it was um, it was relatively bloodless. Uh, thereafter, uh, new technologies are discovered. Um, basically, hyperspace. I mean, I call it use space. Um, ships that can travel through you uh, through use space. 
gateways between worlds. And with that, you get the big expansion of um, the humans and the AIs and uh, the growth of the polity. And it's, um, it's, it's big space opera. <laughs> and the AIs do a good job ruling. You say that actually, or in this book, it suggests that corruption is something that only happens among humans and low-grade sentience, and that when an AI is sufficiently sophisticated, it's kind of above corruption. It's, yeah, it's, it's kind of above corruption, but it's, it's, it's not above, they're, they're, they are not above um, having their own agendas, very definitely. And some of them, um, you know, fall out of the, uh, the silly tree, hitting every branch on the way down. So um, some of them go, go a bit crazy. <laughs> and so in terms of aliens, there are three alien races that are extinct, um, sort of mm -hmm. as the series opens, the Jain, the Saurians, and the Atheter. And, yep, and you mentioned the Praetor it. are these sort of aliens that that are around still. Um, yeah, well, yeah. This this um, in in the polity's history, I've I've only I've only dealt with um, the human polity has a war with the Praetor. Yeah, but there's there's only one book that I have that actually deals with that any any aspect of that. Now that's a small one called uh, Praetor Moon. So most mostly the, the war is in. In, in my books, the war is history, yeah? Mm -hmm. But I had they encountered this race and they had a major war. But uh, now now it's um, it's an uneasy truce between the two sides. But, yeah, sorry, carry on. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, and, and so the polity, it's it's mostly a civilization of, of humans and AIs and genetically engineered. Yeah. There's not a lot of aliens like, incorporated into it, is, was my impression. Oh, not actually incorporated into the polity, no, no. Yeah, I mean the only um, the only uh, uh, alien race that they have encountered in a well in a big bad way was the Praetor, and they can't exactly incorporate them because <laughs> it's because uh, <laughs> they're a little bit hostile. Yeah, yeah. And so um, one um, comment I read online it describes the polity as a libertarian response to Ian M. Banks's Culture series. And I was just curious <laughs> what you thought about that characterization. Uh, I don't know that I agree with it really, but I suppose it could be taken as that. Yeah. I mean, were you? What do you think of Ian Banks's Culture series? Oh, I loved those books. Yeah, I loved them. Up in my top ten, I mean, um, would be Ian M. Banks's use of weapons. I think that's excellent. I think um, basically he 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 came to the same conclusion as me about the human race, is that we're always, we're going to just keep screwing up while humans are ruling it. <laughs> <laughs> so he, I mean, he went the same kind of route, didn't he? He's uh, he's, um, I believe his AIs are in charge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, same sort of thing, isn't it? No, I, I love those books. Use of Weapons is absolutely one of my favorite books ever. Oh God, yeah, yeah. Um, and you have there's a sort of similar idea where the the polity is spreading out and you call it subsuming um, yeah. other uh, worlds and things. And you say that, but it's um it's kind of democratic that the world has to vote eighty percent. It has to be an eighty percent vote uh, yeah. in order for yeah. it to join the polity. Yeah, and and they can secede from the polity as well. It's, um yeah. So you see the polity as uh as mostly benevolent, or is is it sort of would you want to live in the polity? 
Oh, good, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, mostly benevolent. Mostly benevolent. As, um, I mean, the way I portray it, I mean, I, I don't, I don't say vast amounts about what goes on inside the polity because uh, stories are conflict, yeah? And the thing is, inside the polity, there isn't so much of that, yeah? It's um, it's always on the on the line or the border of the polity or where it's, um, where you have a place called the graveyard, which is like the no man's land between the polity and the Praedor. Um, the conflict is out on the edge. In the polity, within the polity itself, it's uh, it's pretty much utopian. So, not so many stories to tell there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in this book, I, there are just little hints of what life is like inside the polity. Um, at one point, some characters have a conversation, and one character says, two centuries ago, I'd have believed you, but things have moved on since then. And another character says, economics hasn't. And, you know, one of the big premises of the culture series or Star Trek or something is that we're going to have a... Uh, post-scarcity civilization and economics is going to completely change. Do you mm. do you see the polity functions different, or is it a post-scarcity civilization, or how does that work? It's um, well, it is pretty much post-scarcity, but I don't see that it. Um, I don't see the um, the get the was I don't see money going away. I don't see methods of exchange going away. So yeah, it's um, it's pretty much. No, it's not really completely post-scarcity, but it's um, very, very wealthy. Yeah. Uh I mean, I think at at another point, um, it mentions that once the polity takes over, that uh, AIs will be doing some of the some of the drudge work, like uh, driving things like that. Mm. Do you do people within the polity? Do they have jobs, or are they mostly? Is it mostly sort of a leisure um, civilization? Well, I mean. I've had um, a little look at that in some of the books. I mean, you have uh, uh, people taking up jobs as as a as a hobby, as an activity. Yeah, like for example, there's um, uh, taxis. You know, they're, they're um, just, uh, I talk about them in in various stories and so on. And you'll have taxis which are just like controlled by a city a city AI, or even an onboard AI. Or sometimes there are people who, who who will have the job, you know, take the job as uh, of driving a taxi, something to do. I think that's, I mean, that's that's an aspect of that kind of future that you have to think about is um, boredom. Hmm. I mean, I, I cover that with the um, with the uh, um, people living for an awful long time. Yeah, they're, pra- they're practically immortal. Yeah. I deal with that with the NUI barrier. When people reach a certain age, they've done too much, and um, <laughs> and want to finish it. But, yeah. So, uh, how long does it take to reach the the ennui barrier? Um, between 150 and 250 years is when it hits, <laughs> apparently. And so people they'll they'll just have jobs for recreation, like they'll drive they'll they'll be a driver or something for fun. And are there other things that they would do to I don't know to pass the time? Um, science fiction well, things. Um, well, one of the as- one of the aspects of that of that future that I'm covering is that um, is that the AIs are trying to um, basically uplift humanity. Yeah, but they've got plenty of time to do it. So people will be will do more complex jobs but they um 
will basically they basically having to upgrade themselves to to do so yeah so yes people will do um, some very very complicated things but um they have to become more complicated themselves mm-hmm. to get there there's also there's a part where you say um all the individual protection laws had been thrown out centuries ago if a person wanted to risk his own life that was his privilege just so long as no other unconsenting individuals were put at risk the powers that be look upon it as evolution in action <laughs> oh god that sounds cynical <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes I pr- yes i did where did i say that <laughs> Uh, it's page 307. Uh, let's see. That was the story, uh, Adaptogenic. Oh, God damn, that's an old story. <laughs> but that was one, that was one written when I was actually forming the idea of the polity. Yeah. I mean, that does seem like a very libertarian idea. I was curious, why, why do you, um, I don't know, not endorse the, the libertarian um, answer to the culture series idea? Um, because that um, thought was never actually in my mind, yeah? I, I mean, the way you said it, the way you said it earlier on, it was sort of like, um, this was my intention. This was what I was doing. It may come across to people as, an, as a libertarian answer to the culture, but that wasn't the aim. That wasn't the intention. I just wrote it as I saw it. So, yeah, maybe it is a libertarian answer to it. I've never thought that much about it, yeah? Hmm. My aim is to tell a story and to entertain. Uh-huh. Um, I just wanted to ask you about the, the criminal justice system. It sounds like they can they, the AIs will kind of, if you've committed a crime, the AIs will kind of read your mind, and um, mm-hmm. then they can, uh, it, it says you can be sort of like disintegrated, um, you could be readjusted or have your mind wiped. I was yeah. just wondering what is what is what does readjustment consist of? <laughs> oh well setting you right so that you think correctly, of course. <laughs> I mean, do you think that because it's you know, when um I interviewed um Melinda Snodgrass recently and she'd worked on Star Trek The Next Generation and she said at one point that Gene Roddenberry had said that in the Star Trek universe that if you committed a crime that they would sort of alter your brain to make it so you wouldn't yeah. commit crimes anymore. Um, yeah. She found that somewhat uh, sinister or something but um, I don't know. You, you think that that's, uh, that's, that's a good solution? I think, it's, I, think I mean it's, right, it's, it's always sinister. It's always sinister when you think about. I mean, who who is it that's doing the adjusting? It's it's all it's everything, anything like that, any kind of punishment, whatever. Is is sinister? It's it just depends. It depends who's doing it, doesn't it? Yeah, like it's locking somebody in a cage for the rest of their life. It's yeah. kind of sinister too. If you, if yeah. it's not familiar. If to if, you. if if the powers that be are excuse me, shitbags, then locking somebody <laughs> in the cage is probably not great, is it? <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, now I go through, I mean, I go through this. I think the bit that I'm putting across with this is the AIs are better, yeah? I mean, ba- basically, I'll go with Ian and Banks on, on it about that, it's, you know, because they haven't got glands, right? <laughs> but um, I mean, there's been a, there's been a lot recently, isn't there, about um, oh, about the AIs that were that are being 
that are, be, that are being looked at by Google and so on now, yeah? And there's been quite a bit of debate about, about you know, the programming that goes into them and about, oh, we don't want to actually program them to be biased or, or this or that, yeah? Well, I think that it's, uh, it's inescapable that if we do produce um, like major artificial intelligences, well, they are going to be, I mean, they're actually going to be, they're, they're the next generation of us, yeah, if you like. They're, they're going to be our children, yeah? And you, and you can't get by the fact that we are going to influence the way that they think and the way that they behave. Well, yeah, like you, I mean, like you mentioned, I mean, people like Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking recently have been warning about the dangers of artificial intelligence. Do you think that that is um, sort of overhyped or, you know, would you put any sort of, um, you know, limitations on AI research? No, I wouldn't put any limitations. on. I'd never put any limitations on any kind of scientific research. Um, I think it's like they're overhyping it. Yeah. But you will have the artificial intelligences will, to a certain extent, think like us. Yeah? They will not have the needs that we have so much. Though, though admittedly, if they are, you know, if they are building and extending themselves, they could, they could probably do with some money, couldn't they, to do <laughs> it? Um, but yes, I think they'll be like, very much like us. <laughs> I, see, 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 the thing is, when when people talk about this and they're going, oh, like, oh my God, it's a terrible danger and it's terrible, you know, what's going to happen with AIs. But I don't see them getting that powerful that quickly. Yeah. Um, I'm totally, uh, one of the things I disagree with, which is people um, go on about quite a lot, is this, um, is the AI singularity now, yeah? where suddenly everything's going to be, it's, it's, it's the rapture of nerds. It's going to be massive changes, and and that kind of, that kind of view about how oh, how terrible it would be with the um, with AIs getting powerful, or whatever, is is linked up to this this idea of this rapture of nerds. It's, I don't think it's going to go that quick. I don't think it's going to. We're going to lose control. Yeah, I don't. I don't see it happening. Yeah, yeah, I tend to agree with that. Mm. I think. Um, I, more, and I'm leaning more to it in the um, in the writing, the writing that I'm doing now, rather than the writing that I was doing, like say, ten years ago. I rather suspect that the um, that what will it will be, um, we will evolve with them. Yeah, that um, the future, the far future, is going to be a point where you know you won't be able to tell the difference between the AI and the human. Yeah. Yeah, that does seem to be the direction it's going. I, I just started reading this book by Gary Kasparov, the chess champion. And mm -hmm. after losing his big match to to the IBM computer, he um, he started doing these experiments where he had humans assisted by computers competing against uh, chess playing computers and found that actually the humans assisted by computers could beat the just the computers. Mm. Oh, yeah. Hmm. So that you know that that the human and the AI both bring something to the table in terms of accomplishing tasks. Yeah, I think I think it'll be an amalgamation. I think it'll. Um, I mean, like in my books, the um, you know the orgs, augmentations, uh, grid links, and all this kind of thing. All the the hardware, uh, 
in the books people are putting in their skulls i think um it's going to we're going to we're, we're going to amalgamate with ai as we go along yeah we are more and more as it is you know with, with the way people have got their mobile phones stuck to their heads nowadays i mean um but that's what's going to happen i suspect i don't think there's going to be this distinction of this um these primitive humans left behind we we won't recognize the humans in of um maybe even 50 years time yeah i want to say i think that you write the alien monsters and all just all the biology stuff in this book is just really really well done i was just curious what sort of um research you do or backgrounds you have when it comes to biology oh the well the biology i mean it's again it's um one of my uh it was one of my big interests. It still is one of my big interests. Um, a lot of the, I've, I've read an awful lot of biology. Um, I, th- I think I blame my um, my interest in in a lot of the certain aspects of the, the biology in my books to um, I don't know years as a child would like turning over rocks in the um, at the seaside and so on and seeing what crawls out. Um, what one thing that's affected um, that, that comes through in a lot of lot of my writing is uh, parasites. I don't know if there's there lots about that in the the gabble. I can't remember. Oh uh, well, there there's there's certainly some. I mean, the, particularly um, the story uh, Chowdapt uh, yes, comes to yeah. mind. Yeah, see that comes from um, oh years and years ago. I, uh, I, before I was taken on by McMillan, I was writing a um, novella. And I was getting interested in this this idea about parasites in this thing. Um, and at the time, I had some friends who was um, this this woman. She was a, a a vet, yeah. And she said, "Oh, I can lend you something to look at." And she gave me this book on um, helminthology, uh, the study of parasitic worms. You know, that uh, the kind of thing that a, a veterinary would have to read, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I read through that, and I read about the life cycles of parasites, and I think that's <laughs> that, that's gone into all of my all of my fiction now. That that chow dapt is is an example of it, but also I mean, me me book the Skinner with the um, oh, with the leeches and the virus that is that, are, that is spread by these leeches and so on. <laughs> it's, it's, it's in it's in most of my books now. That kind of stuff. But yes, it's a big interest in biology that's coming through there. Well, yeah, as I'm looking over the list of stories in this book, too, um, the story. um, Oh, wait, which one? Now I lost it. Uh, Acephalus Dreams, right? Where the guy has sort of a whole alien species downloaded into his brain and then it's trying to break loose. Uh, Yes. That was a really, really creepy story. Oh, it's funny. I mean, when you when you talk about a story like that, and I'm thinking like, and I'm, I'm reminded um, how it started. It basically just started off with that the scene right at the start with the guy cutting cutting the other guy's head off. Seems to be an attraction of mine. The start of Gridling was like that as well. <laughs> yeah, if you start so, yeah, a story that's... off with decapitation, I mean, it's you know, well, you it's just a good get way to straight start. in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There was yeah, actually... that was that. That was another one of the um, ancient races, wasn't it? The Cassorians yeah. in, in the Cephalus dreams. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, actually, speaking of the parasites, there was this line about how humanity at, at some point in the future um, discovers that hornets are the most intelligent species <laughs> on the planet. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. I was just curious where that idea came from. Well, oh, oh this is a this is a good story for you. Um, before I got before I um, was um, being published by major publishers and so on, I used to do all sorts of um, different jobs. Um, oh, building, grass cutting, all sorts. Yeah, I used to work in engineering, this sort of stuff. And there was one time I was um, I was repointing um, the side of an old uh, Victorian building, so, and I was about three floors up on a scaffold. You know what I mean by pointing, repointing? Um, no, not really. <laughs> no, okay. Um, you've got a brick-built building, yeah, and the mortar between the bricks uh, wears away and falls out sometimes, yeah, and then it has to be replaced. So you're basically going along with a little trowel and you're putting mortar in between, back in between the bricks okay. on the outside of the building. That's repoint. That's uh, the the stuff between the bricks is called pointing and repointing is basically putting it back. Yeah. <clears throat> and I was doing that and I was up on the top of this um, scaffold with a bucket of mortar and I was working away, pushing this stuff in between the bricks. And there's a you know really good view up there. And I looked over to my right and thought, oh, there's a helicopter over there. And then I realized that I wasn't seeing things um, straight. And I realized it was a great big hornet <laughs> uh, flying right next to me, yeah, up on this scaffold. And that, you know, I was a little bit worried about that. But what got me was the thing kept flying over to and looking at the work that I was doing, yeah. It was dipping in, the, in midair to look at what I was doing. And then going over to my bucket and looking in that, and then coming up to me, yeah. And its behaviour behavi looked almost intelligent. Um, that was before I screamed and went <laughs> <laughs> clambering down the scaffold to the bottom. And this thing just kept coming back and visiting me, this hornet. At one point, it even chased me inside, inside the house, <laughs> which was all a bit strange. But its behaviour looked intelligent. And obviously that stuck in my mind, and um, and then I used it. Do you know if there's any research on hornet intelligence that's been done? Because I, I sort of got the impression from the book it was less that the individual hornets were intelligent and more that the um, hive, a hive as a whole was. Yeah, it's a hive mind. I honestly I don't know if there has been any research done on that. I mean, it is. I think it's a it's a pretty old um, uh, science fictional idea, isn't it? of hive minds and, you know, that a, that a mind is spread across a, an entire hive. But, uh, yeah, it, well, it came from, it came from that. And I, I included it in some of those early short stories, early short stories, um, you know, before I was taken on by Macmillan and then, oh, and then I took, um, uh, two of those early sh short stories, and they were turned into me uh, the second book from them, the uh, the Skinner. So you've got intelligent hornets um, buzzing about in that as well. I also wanted to ask you. I was I was looking over your blog, some of your, some of your most recent blog posts, and mm -hmm. you said uh, in your in your review of um, Altered Carbon, you said um, I understand how you need to take a lighter, more understanding view of religion if you are not to alienate a large portion of your audience 
Parentheses, I reckon this was why Tor US, while publishing my books, made size excuses about the line of polity and didn't publish it. I was just curious yeah. what, what that story was. Yeah, well, that's one of my that's one of my theories. Uh, yeah, because um, I had another look at Altered Carbon when Alt Carbon came on um, on the TV on Netflix. I had another look at my copy of Altered Carbon, and there was um, it was it was much more um, much more unforgiving of religion. Let's put it that way than the actual thing that appeared on the on the screen. Um, regarding um, the line of polity. Um, it was it was just a weird situation because uh, you, you've got my um, my the series uh, my Cormac series like line of policy was the um, was the second book yeah in the series and they missed it out and then published the next one instead and the excuse given was that it was too big uh, but I've seen I've seen books of that size and bigger. Uh, being published in America by them, so I thought, oh, well, what's all that about? And the only conclusion I could come to was that it was pretty hard on religion in that book, and maybe they didn't want to um, alienate what they might have thought might have been an audience for it. I don't know. But in what way was the book hard on religion? Oh, it's um, it's very uh, it's very atheistic. It's um, in the in the book itself, the um, the setting of it is a um, is a world called Masada, <laughs> which is um, is run by a theocracy. Um, and throughout it, young writer again, I was using it. Um, I was uh, attacking religion. Yeah, it was all a bit. Um, I don't know, all a bit paraphrasing Richard Dawkins, if you like, going through it. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah. So you know, and that could that could have pissed people off. So maybe that was it. I don't know. I'm probably wrong. <laughs> probably paranoid. <laughs> it it seems weird though that if it was, did they ever ask you to cut it down if the length was really the issue? No, no. Just didn't publish that book. And they just went on and published the uh, the next one, Brassman. And I thought, oh, that's a bit strange. Huh. Yeah, it's weird. Mm. Um, I was also looking over your your Twitter feed, and uh, you post a lot about science fiction, and you post a lot about science, and you post a lot about politics. And yeah, I think too been... much about too much about bloody politics. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you've been posting a lot recently in favor of Brexit, and yeah. um, somebody said, um, "May I say, may I say, what a pleasure it is to see an author with sensible views on Brexit." And you re mm. you respond doesn't do me any favors in PC left sci-fi land, and <laughs> I was just curious what um what kind of experiences have you had um you know that well, were you saying I generally I mean no I just um I opted out basically of um science fiction land if you like it's um I don't I look around at the uh, at the writers that I that I know of. That, I've, that I see on Twitter and the opinions and the political opinions and all this kind of thing. And pff, I'm, I'm just, I'm just not one of the herd in that respect. So I keep out of it. Uh, did you have any, I don't know, do you have any experiences where people said anything to you or you just kind of felt unwelcome? Oh, I've, I've, I've been attacked in the past. 
Um, yeah, I wonder who hasn't. If you if you're active, if you're active on um, on Twitter and Facebook like that, and if you have strong views, well, somebody's going to attack you, aren't they? <laughs> I mean, that just happens. Um, yeah, I've been called everything. I've been called a racist, sexist, homophobe. Of course, I have. Yeah, that's there. You go. That's life. But so you've just sort of withdrew, and now you're doing your own thing, and you're you're happy happy doing that. Yeah, yeah. I don't um, I don't bother with um, science fiction conventions because everything that I've read about that um, with with what goes on at science fiction conventions has become very very politically correct. Um, and I can't see myself sitting on a um, on a panel or anything like that and <laughs> keeping my mouth shut. So it's probably best if I don't go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I haven't been to a science fiction convention in, I don't know, 10, 10 or 15 years. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But yeah, part of it was just people just constantly attacking each other. And it's just a lot of drama all the time. And yeah, yeah. Just, I, yeah I mean, I'll just, uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. But I mean, for example, the, the kind of things that have repelled me from that entire world was, um, did you ever hear of this thing called Race Fail? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we where it was just this massive argument going on from um, from blog to blog to all across the internet going going on and on and on and that kind that kind of it's just it's self-destructive and mad and I, I'm just sort of like mm, no I'll just back away from that I won't be bothering with that I'll just I'll just write entertaining books and that'll do me thank you very much yeah, I mean, I, I personally, I feel some of those conversations are important, but it's just when it gets so personal and mean, uh, it's just, yeah, it's just really, I don't know, it makes you it makes you want to kind of withdraw from some of that stuff. Yeah, well, that's it. That's exactly what I've done. Um, I saw that you spent a lot of time at one point. You've, I guess you've withdrawn to Crete part of the time. Like, how did you end yep. up going there? Oh, sorry? Uh, how did you end up oh, right, making Crete okay. your second home, sort of? Well, I was obviously doing well with the writing and so on. And it's like, um, what do you spend your money on? I've got no interest in having um, like a bigger house or huge cars or, or anything like that. And I thought it'd be uh, just an idea for a get a holiday home. And fell into Crete because it was, um, was, went on a holiday there once. And it's the furthest south in Europe. Um, very very hot and big enough for um, uh, for um, you know to get for uh, the cities there obviously to go shopping. It's not like, it's not like um, going to one of the smaller Greek islands where you'd have problems getting hold of things. So yeah, ended up there. I haven't been there haven't been there for a couple of years now. Uh, so did you? Uh, I don't know. Do you? Is there stuff? To, I got the impression from some of these stories that you do a lot of outdoor stuff. Is that true? Me. Oh yes. Um, okay. Well, I have to. I mean, it's uh, if I if I just sit at my desk all day, I'll end up about this. I'll end up the size of a house. So, <laughs> um, I do an awful lot of walking. Um, I do a lot of walking here in England. I mean, um, but out there, I did a. I was doing an awful lot of walking in the mountains, a lot of swimming and kayaking and things like that, and writing. It all sounds very ideal, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I also saw on your blog that you have a thing you're doing called "Who Reads My Books," where it looks like you have readers sort of write in to to talk about themselves who are who are fans of yours. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's um. Oh, I mean the 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 blog is a hungry thing, isn't it? I mean, if you want, you've got to feed the blog. It's like the plant in the little shop of horrors, isn't it? Um. Yes, and I, yeah, I thought it would just be a good idea for um. To get something from the from the fans. So, who was the first person that you uh, that you had had oh. do that? Oh God, I don't, I don't, because um, I did, I did a recent batch of people, but I also did um, many, um, oh, some, I don't, maybe it could be ten years ago. There, there was a load then, um, so I, I couldn't tell you who was the first. I couldn't tell you who was the first. Um, but it's it's nice actually because it's um, like I've got, I'm on Facebook. And an all and I, I advertised it on there. Said like anybody wants to wants to tell their story, um, you know, please do so. And you get people telling their story, people who are on my Facebook page, and it's it forms more of a community, yeah, because they're reading each other's profiles and how they got into books and and talking to each other about it and about about what they read first and all this sort of thing. And it's it's quite nice. It forms it forms a little bit of a community. So were the um, the stories that you got from people are they kind of what you had imagined your readers were like, or were they different than what you had imagined? Um, I think uh, different from what I imagined. I don't um, brought it cl- brought it. I mean, not much different from what I imagined, but it brought it um, brought it home that these these are people. Yeah. You can you can get quite divorced on on social media and so on from these people that you, people that you talk to, um, and but not quite seeing them as people. Yeah, this is why you get so much bloody anger and everything on um, on the social media because they're not actually seeing people. Um, no, not much different from what I imagined, but I just got closer to it and lots and lots of interesting stuff as well. Lots of interesting um, readers. Obviously, I've got. Um, oh, I'm not sure if that one actually appeared, but there was there was one guy who's um, on a U.S. submarine. He's a I don't know an engineer on a U.S. submarine or something, and I've got the whole collection of my books on the submarine. <laughs> I'd love to see a picture of that. <laughs> Are there any other any other stories from those that have come out that that kind of stick out in your mind? Oh. Um, Oh, various. There's a motorcycle guy that races motorcycles. There's um, oh, there's a astrophysicist. Oh, a particular one I liked was um, on this recent lot was this uh, young guy who um, who read um, my book, The Skinner, and he, he was reading you know those books, and because they're very um, about. There's a lot about uh, well, it's alien marine life, yeah. And you know, a lot of my, a lot of the biology in my books is whatever. It's weird, um, but it encouraged him to uh, take a, um, oh, go to go back to um, to college and study marine biology. Hmm. It, stories, it, stories like that, I love hearing things like that. There's some preachers in my books called um, Hooders. Um, they're on that planet Masada, the one, the one that didn't get published by Tor US. Um, 
and he had a mantis shrimp in a tank, his pet mantis shrimp, and he called it Huda. <laughs> That's really cool. I mean, I've heard some authors, when they get popular and they have connections to their fans, and a lot of those fans are experts in different topics, that they can draw on them as a resource if they, uh, you know, for research and so on. Do you ever do that? Do you reach out to these people and draw on their expertise in marine biology and things like that? Um occasionally i'll put a question out um the thing is nowadays was it when i when i started when i started writing i mean i would be um reaching out to the shelves behind me for reference books and things like this to find out things uh but nowadays with the search engines the search engines are so good that you you can you can you can find out stuff on on most subjects now i occasionally um i'd occasionally put uh, questions out there i mean <laughs> I'm trying to think of one. Um, oh, one was whether you could cause a um, oh, was it, I could cause a fusion explosion with using um, uh, mirrors, like you know, vast solar mirrors focused. It's focused in on one point because somebody had argued that no, you can't do that, and um, and I'd actually put that in this, put it in one of my books, and then I got an astrophysicist coming back saying, well. Hmm, it's possible. So I thought, okay, that's good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. yeah, I was going to ask you earlier, you know, I mentioned that you, you're just constantly posting science stuff on Twitter. Like, how do you, where, mm. do you, where, where are you finding those stories? Are there particular, um, you know, outlets that you follow that, are, that you think are really good? Um, well, I'm, I'm scattered across, I've got, I've got a, a number of science sites. I mean, generally what I was trying to do um, when I'm in the process of writing something is I'd warm up my brain by reading about five science articles in whatever I'm interested in, yeah? Um, uh, various sites, was it um, Fizzorg? Fizz.org, yeah? Uh, Medical Express? Um, oh. oh, and others like that. I mean, there, there, there are many, there's many of them. So it's just uh, digging through, digging through the dross to find the articles that are that really interests me, which is uh, that's sometimes a bit difficult, mm. but yeah. So you've written, I think about 25 novels now. And I was yeah. just curious, oh, yeah. what is it like, like, how is it different writing the, the 20th poly novel versus writing the first one, for example? Um, how's it different? It tend, I mean, after a time, I mean, it, it tends to be, it's, it's a job. Yeah. Once you've done it for a long time, it's become a job. Um, it's still the best job in the world, yeah. but it's, um, there, see, there seems to be more, um, oh, I don't know, more grunt work involved. Yeah. When, I mean, when I started off with, um, it's, you, you sat down and it was all about inspiration. Yeah. Before I was taken on by a bigger, uh, bigger publisher, it was all about inspiration and things like this. And you did it when you felt inspired. But um, it's making the transition to being a professional. Well, you, so I can't remember the quote, uh, who, who said it, but there's a quote, isn't there, about um, um, I write when I'm inspired and I make sure that I'm inspired <laughs> at 8 o'clock every morning. You know? <laughs> it's, it's, I can't remember who the quote's from, but yeah, it's, 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 it's more work. But, like I said, best job in the world. Because, I mean, it seems like it could get easier because you have figured out so much of the world already and you have all that 
to draw on, but then it could also get harder because uh, so much oh, is yeah, fixed yeah. and you don't have as much flexibility to invent things. Yeah. Well, well yeah. It's, um, I mean, the, when I say the, the grunt work, I mean, that's like the, the, uh, the like emotional a- aspect or the attitude towards it. But as far as the actual um, producing stuff is concerned, um, when I, uh, back when I was writing um, books like uh, Gridlinked and so on, I started off, I was saying to myself, right, I'm going to write, um, oh, no, before Gridlink, I was going to write, right, I'm going to write 500 words a day, yeah? Got taken on by a big publisher, right, I'm going to write 1,000 words a day, five days a week, yeah? Well, as time has gone on, that's gone up to um, 2,000 words a day. Um, and I do them a lot, lot quicker. Yeah, I mean, I've learned learned an awful lot it just it flows very very easily i mean it would take um it would take back then it would take me all day to write a thousand words um nowadays i can do two thousand words sometimes it will take all, all day if i'm chopping things about and rearranging things and doing bits of editing in between or whatever like that but i mean sometimes if if I'm in the flow or whatever like that, I can do 2,000 words in just a few hours. So it's, that's changed. I mean, so what is sort of the current state of the polity books? The Soldier, I think, is the most recent one to come out? Yes. Yeah, The Soldier's the most recent. I've just um, I've just gone through the editing of the next one, which is The Warship. Um and that's that's gone back to Macmillan, and and then it will come back to me again with the copy editing, yeah. With the uh, you needed a comma here and all this kind of mm-hmm. stuff, yeah. Um, so that's on its way. But I've also written to first draft uh, the, the final book, which is going to be called, I hope, uh, the Human. So I've written that to first draft, and I, what I'm basically doing with that, I'm just leaving it. That's just sitting on the um, that's been buried in peat, and I'm going to forget about it for a few months <laughs> and then come back to it later on with a new eye. Is, yeah. is there anything you want to say about those that new trilogy that um, sort of will entice people to, to go check it out? Oh, it's brilliant, wonderful space opera, and you'll be, you'll be hugely entertained and enjoy it immensely. Will that do? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I guess that'll do it. And so um, I, this is just sort of a random thing, but I, in uh, in the book, there was just this um, uh, setting detail where uh, genuine fossil fuel-based plastic is a valuable artifact. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I think that's kind of funny, but I, I really like that kind of stuff in science fiction because to me, part of the purpose of science fiction is to get you outside your your current context and to, to contemplate yeah. the scope of time and space and everything. And just the idea that, genuine fossil fuel based plastic would be valuable um mm. you know, i just i just love that detail yeah we, well, when you think about it if if we'd um if in the far future we do you know that because that's that's an optimistic future anyway that we can that we will actually spread out into the um the rest of the galaxy um but if we did and like uh, human populations is, is going up into the trillions and we're on and we're on thousands of different worlds we'll probably just about any 
any artifact or any material, in fact, from planet Earth would probably be of value, wouldn't it? You know, this is this is a piece of a I don't know a twentieth century. This is a twentieth century Coke can. You know, <laughs> we we're, we're having a museum case out on out on uh, out on the edge of the galaxy somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so deal. So we're uh, we're out of time. So I just want to ask you if you had any uh, any final thoughts, anything you didn't get a chance to mention, or do you want to give people direct them to your website or Twitter or anything like that? Well, I mean, I can be found on um, on Twitter and Facebook. There's um, there's my website, which is um, neilasher.co.uk, where you can find out about the books and and other links and so on. But uh, internet search engines, you can find anything nowadays. That's, I don't know. The only thing to say is read my books. <laughs> yeah. All right, Chris, we've been speaking with Neil Asher about his short story collection, The Gabble and Other Stories. It's it's really, really good. I really enjoyed it. I highly recommend it. And so, Neil, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. Cheers. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Neil Asher for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Holt Castoris, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening. 